The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about meat minus the animal. We'll speak with scientist Dr. Mark Post about laboratory-cultured beef and its implications for food security, environmental impact, and animal welfare. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Jesse Yaros. Today we're talking with Dr. Mark Post, Chair of the Physiology Department at Maastricht University. His primary research is in tissue engineering for medical applications and for food, the latter of which he is here to talk with us about today. He presented the world's first lab-grown hamburger on live television in 2013, and since then has been working on improvements and scaling up of production of cultured meat. Mark, thanks so much for being with us today. Welcome. Hi. So um, could you start with telling us how and, and why you got involved in, in such an interesting line of research? Well, um, I'm a medical doctor and um, mostly a vascular biologist, so interested in blood vessels. And we ended up doing uh, tissue engineering of blood vessels for bypass grafting. Uh, that technology is the same that we eventually used for uh, muscle tissue engineering. And I ended up doing that by uh, getting acquainted with that um, subject through a guy here in the Netherlands who was obsessed with this idea for about 30 years or so. And at some point he assembled a group of scientists from Utrecht, Amsterdam and Eindhoven to start working on it with a grant from the Dutch government. Great. Um, and you continued to do the research after the grant had already ended. Is that correct? Right. That's correct. Um, at the end of the, uh, the project, we didn't have really a hamburger to speak of yet, but we did have the technology to make it happen, uh, but didn't have the money anymore. So, uh, and I thought it was just crazy because this was a great idea and we should be able to get funding for it. So we developed this idea of creating a, um, a sausage basically from a pig. Uh, sample and and presented to the public with uh, the pig running around on the stage um, but we still didn't have the money uh, but we did have a lot of publicity and through sort of all sorts of well ma mostly through uh, media contacts we um, got the funding to do this uh, uh, but it was American funding so it became a hamburger instead of a sausage <laughs> we do like our right. hamburgers here in the US right <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful so um I guess since it is a hamburger, could you take us through the steps, uh, step by step, what it takes to grow a hamburger patty? Well, we start with uh, stem cells. Um, every uh, mammal or even birds and fish have stem cells in their muscle. They're, they're designated muscle stem cells. So they sit there doing nothing, just waiting until the muscle gets injured and they repair uh, the tissue by first dividing, uh, multiplying, and then forming a, a new tissue. Uh, and that's exactly what we are doing. We take those stem cells out. We let them multiply in, let's say, a Petri dish um, until you have trillions and trillions of cells. And then we put um, one and a half million cells together in, in a, a small gel uh, where they can find, the cells can find each other. They can form a muscle fiber. They start to contract in a Petri dish, um, even if there's no reason for them to contract, they start to contract, they start to build up tension, and that tension is the biggest trigger for protein synthesis. So they're uh, the contractile proteins that usually make the muscle contract, 
but um, is also sort of the nutritional value of meat for us. Huh, interesting. Um, uh, would you like to continue? I'm sorry. Right. It, it, so then you have a, a muscle fiber consisting of one and a half million cells. And what we basically did, we made 10,000 of these muscle fibers um, and, and kneaded them into a patty with uh, breadcrumbs and egg white and salt and that sort of thing. Okay. Um, so you mentioned that, uh, I guess, the building block is stem cell. And it's stem right. cells that have a fate of musculoskeletal cells. Is that it's the right. self-aid right. that's possible for them? Uh, it's not the only one, but it's the predominant one. Uh, we just found out that, that they can also become fat cells, which for us is very fortunate because we also need some fat tissue in that hamburger eventually. Okay. Um, and uh, that is really interesting because at least people always say the taste is in the fat. Right. So, um, that's not that's not entirely true, but we I guess we all can experience that if you if you have a very lean muscle, it's actually very difficult to distinguish from which animal it's coming. Um, until you have a piece of fat with it, then you immediately recognize it as um, a cow, pork, or um, or lamb, for instance. That's fascinating. Is it that the um, fat cells maybe? Di- differentiated between species more so than the musculoskeletal cells? Uh, well, it could be. There are definitely differences between fat tissue that you take from a, um, from a pig or from a cow. Um, uh, so, yes, the, the composition is different. Uh, the cells are slightly different. And, and it may be that there, there are more differences between fat cells uh, in general than between, between species than between muscle cells of different species. That's really interesting. Um, I guess uh, one of the main questions I have is how long does it take from the beginning of this process, getting the sample of stem cells to the ultimate hamburger? It, it takes about eight, eight to nine weeks. Um and it takes. It's interesting because it's it's an exponential process. Most of it is um, uh, is dependent on how fast the cells divide, and that is something that is just in in mammalian cells is a fixed time. It takes about twenty four to thirty hours for a cell to divide, and you don't want to really uh, mess with that. You don't want to shorten that in any way. So. But they do divide, and then one cell becomes two, and two, four, and four, eight. So if it takes, let's say, eight weeks to make one hamburger, it takes eight weeks and one day to make two hamburgers, uh, and eight weeks and two days to make four hamburgers. So it's okay. um, if you have the capacity in your system to grow as many cells um, at the same time as you can, can get, then time is no longer sort of a limiting factor. Okay. So... Uh, you mentioned that you are basically layering a bunch of different m- meat fibers, beef fibers, on top of one another and mixing them with some other ingredients to make a burger. And originally the concept was for a sausage, which is also sort of ground uh, beef product. Right. What right. is the likelihood of being able to use this technology to create um, a slab of meat like a steak? 
Right. Well, that requires um, a, a little bit of tweaking of the technology. So this, uh, what we have been doing right now, is allowing the cells to self-organize in a tissue. Uh, that is, there is a limit in size, uh, which is basically about one millimeter in diameter, and that has to do with. Um, diffusion limits of oxygen and nutrients that have to come from the outside and go all the way in. Um, so if you want to make a stick, you have to do three things. One, you have to impose from uh, the beginning a larger 3D structure on all these cells. So you start with a much larger number of cells and you impose one big large 3D structure, for instance, through 3D printing. Then um, you need to have a channel system with a with where medium and with oxygen and nutrients can be perfused through the tissue, much the same way as we have blood vessels. We might want to use blood vessels for that. We are not quite sure, but um, we definitely need a channel system and a perfusion system. And third, uh, because a, a slab of muscle is usually uh, muscle fibers adjacent to uh, fat um, cells and fat tissue growing together, you need to figure out how you can get the muscle cells and the fat cells growing together, although initially they need slightly different um, conditions to grow under. This is not something that is um, um, extremely difficult to do, but it is time-consuming and it will uh, just require uh, time and, um, and, um, and money, basically. Uh, you mentioned 3D printing, um, and there is developing technology in how to 3D print meat, though um, I believe it's not as developed as, as your technology. Is that correct? Uh, right, that's correct. And um, and again, you, you, 3D printing is not the only thing that you need to do. You need to also um, co-culture those cells and, and get a channel system like this in place. Right. Uh, but 3D printing, you would say, is not necessarily... Um, a competitor to your technology. It might, in fact, be able to enhance what you can do. Right. We we will need a, a system like that. It doesn't necessarily need to be 3D printing, but some sort of larger freeform fabrication uh, that allows you to impose a larger, bigger 3D structure on uh, the cells. Okay, I'd like to talk a bit more about um, what your lab has been focusing on in the last few years in terms of optimizing the cultured beef in terms of look, texture, taste, nutrition. Now, you've already mentioned a bit about um, fat and, and protein. Could you expand upon those factors a bit? Right. When we presented the hamburger in 2013, it was a proof of concept. And we knew that the way we produced that was eventually not the way we're going to do it. Um, so first of all, we used uh, serum, which is a blood-derived product from animals, to grow the cells. And eventually, you cannot continue doing that. So we um, found replacements for serum um, so that the cells can grow without serum, but with, with these replacements. Um, that works reasonably well, um, and we're still sort of optimizing that. Um, second, um, you already mentioned the fat. We added fat tissue to the, uh, to the whole process so that we can now culture fat tissue from um, uh, cow cells um, and that to enhance taste and, and to enhance the, the mouthfeel. We improved the protein content 
very specifically a protein called myoglobin, which gives uh, meat its red color, uh, but also its heme iron uh, content, so it's a nutritional value, and probably also taste, some claim. Um, and uh, fourth, we um, changed the way of producing so that it can be scaled. So traditionally, it's in Petri dishes or in flasks, uh, because these cells need to grow on a surface. But eventually, um, you cannot scale that. So um, we wanted to move to a larger bioreactor, a tank, if you like, a stir tank. But because the cells have to grow on a surface, you need to grow them on microcarriers that are suspended in a tank like this. And uh, that's what we have been working on in the last couple of months. So what is the serum that you are now able to use made from? Um, it's mostly plant-derived, um, and some of the uh, proteins that you need that are essential in serum that you require for the, 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 that these cells require to grow are uh, made from recombinant technology, so are made either in bacteria or yeast or, or algae. So for listeners who are unaware, the original media was fetal bovine serum, am I correct? Right, exactly. Which is used pretty often in research um, and growing of cell cultures, but can be controversial in such a, a publicized project considering the way it's made from extracting blood from a, a live fetus's heart. Well, well, that's one reason, uh, but also um, since these are... Uh, bovine fetuses um, if the whole purpose of this endeavor is that we go from one and a half billion cows on the planet to let's say 30,000 and then obviously we don't have supply of serum anymore so um, it's for all sorts of reasons um, animal welfare sustainability uh, regulatory um, issues diseases that may come with serum there are all sorts of reasons to get rid of that serum um, and that's why this is a big um, step forward and, and a big endeavor. Oh, wonderful. Um, in terms of uh, the increase in in fat cells, you mentioned that the stem cells can can I mean I imagine given the right conditions be um, uh, I guess prompted into becoming fat cells. Is that how you added fat into the burgers, or did you uh, grow fat separately? Well, currently we grow fat separately. So we use the same stem cells and we um, use different conditions to drive them towards a fat cell instead of a muscle cell. And then you grow a fat tissue uh, and later on you combine the pieces of fat tissue with the muscle fibers and, and you make a patty. For a for any processed meat, that's a perfectly uh, valid solution. Um, again, if you want to make... Um, a steak, you need to find a way to co-culture them. So what are the different conditions needed to push uh, the same stem cell towards one muscus musculoskeletal fate versus um, a fat cell fate? Right. So for these stem cells, the, the muscle-derived stem cells, for them to uh, turn into muscle cells, we actually starve them. So we take away um, all the proteins that are required to let them proliferate. Um, so basically, we call that starving, although it's not essentially starving, but it's something similar. Um, 
And then they start to, they stop proliferating and they start to fuse. They start to merge because the muscle fiber is basically a merged number of cells. And uh, that's the first step towards muscle differentiation. And then when they start to contract, they need to have anchor points so that they can develop tension. Uh, that's the muscle lineage. In order to make them fat cells very early on, you feed them fatty acids. Um, the, the protocol to make fat cells have be, has been described, but is not in itself compatible with food production. So we have changed that and looked very carefully at the, the process. Well, if we give them fatty acids, natural fatty acids, such as unsaturated fatty acids or even some branched uh, saturated fatty acids they start to develop into fat cells and um and become a fat tissue so you deliver fatty acids to the stem cells um while they're still dividing uh right yes while you uh wait for a, a certain amount of cells to be produced for the muscle cells and then start them right exactly so um lastly well, you've mentioned um, uh, creating hemoglobin um, uh-huh. or Myo- myoglobin. I'm sorry, myoglobin, um, which is is it similar to hemoglobin? Is it a is it a molecule within red blood cells? Uh, no, no, it's a, well, it's similar to hemoglobin in the sense that it is an oxygen carrier uh, like hemoglobin, and it turns red in the presence of oxygen and blue in the absence of oxygen. So in that sense, it's similar. It has the same heme iron group in it, um, and the iron basically um, binds to the oxygen, and uh, and the heme group uh, captures the iron um, atom in a certain uh, condition. So that part is the same the the globin part the the protein part of it is is different uh, hemoglobin is a has four uh, big protein chains and myoglobin has only one okay so i imagine in in live cattle the oxygen and iron would be captured um from the blood is that correct that's true. Um, and that's not only in cattle, that's in every mammalian uh, species. Um, uh, so so the, the function of this myoglobin in the muscle cell, it's, it's in the muscle cell and it's also produced by the muscle. So there is no blood involved in that, in that part. Um, has a different function. It has a function in transport of oxygen from the cell membrane to the the mitochondria in the cell where the oxygen is needed, uh, and it also serves as somewhat of a reservoir of oxygen in in muscle cells. So in it, it's a it's a common confusion that in uh, in red meat there is actually not a lot of blood. Um, the animals have been bled. Um, and so most of the blood is is gone, uh, and the red meat uh, really derives its color from the myoglobin and not the hemoglobin. So to get the iron and oxygen into the cells, that's just part of the nutrients that are fed to the cells. Uh, no, they produce the well. They need you need to feed them iron uh, that's in the in the feed. Mm-hmm. Um, but the myoglobin itself is made by the cells. Um, so you, f- you feed them all the necessary building blocks, but then they, they make the myoglobin, uh, by themselves. Now the the reason, 
the reason why we have optimized it, why we had to optimize it is because if you culture cells under ambient oxygen conditions, they don't really uh, form a lot of myoglobin. So what you have to do is you have to grow the cells under lower oxygen conditions so that they um, start to form this myoglobin. So you talk a lot about um, getting sort of the right mouthfeel, the right texture. Do you have any experts to evaluate these things? Are there people with those kind of jobs or are you guys just going on your carnivorous experiences? Um, well, so far we have done the last. <laughs> um, and uh, but, but yes, at some point when we have uh, scaled up production and have gone through uh, regulatory approval, we will have a professional uh, taste panel to, uh, to judge tastes and to, to see where we have to improve or um, whether we are already fine. How many hamburgers would you say that you have made to date? Um, only four, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, because what we are doing right now is mostly at a scientific scale. We're not producing a whole lot of uh, cells or um, or hamburgers, but because everything can be done on a small scale. Has the price gone down from the original um, the original investment? Um, and not yet, because that requires full scaling to, let's say. 25,000 liter um, uh, bioreactors. That, that's our calculation. If we go through that full scaling, then we will get down with the price. Um, so far, we have gone down a little bit, but not enough. Now, how large is 25,000 liters? That's about half the size of an Olympic swimming pool. That's a lot of space. And it would be, right. <laughs> um, like you said, because cells need anchorage points, it'd be... Uh, shelf after shelf after shelf of cells is that correct right well actually the uh, once we let them form fibers uh, they don't require a lot of space anymore because those those fibers are made of one and a half million cells and they they uh, take up only a very little space because they are really packed um the the big the bigger issue uh, with space and with with um, uh, medium and and fluid and feed is while they are proliferating. That's actually the most intensive phase where um, you require most resources and also most space. So um, it's really the proliferation phase where you multiply the cells where all the resources go into. Once they form tissues, it's relatively easy and relatively resource efficient. So besides the giant bioreactor, what are other aspects um, of an upscale in production? What would that look like? Well, uh, forming the tissues, uh, again, is, well, that's something that doesn't require a lot of space and a lot of nutrients and a lot of materials, but it does require labor. Um, so you need to uh, do medium switches. You need to pipette the, the uh, fibers in the, in the exactly right uh, sort of form. So that requires right now a lot of labor that eventually has to be automated. So right now we are designing the equipment to automate that and to uh, form those uh, fiber structures um, in an automatic fashion so that we don't have to handle them um, and it doesn't really require labor. The, the, the biggest um, reason for doing this is, by the way, not to avoid labor, but really to avoid handling of the tissue by human hands. So to maintain the sterility of the tissue. Yeah, exactly.
We'll be right back after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. Moving on to uh, some issues with traditional meat production, what do you think are the most significant problems with the current livestock industry? Uh, well, in my mind, there are three. One is that uh, they use way too much resources because animals are very inefficient, in particular cows, in converting their feed into food for us. Um, second, uh, we know since um, some 10 years that there's a lot of greenhouse gas production associated with livestock, especially, again, with cows because of the methane. Um, so it has been estimated that between 15 and 20% of all our greenhouse gas emission on this planet um, is, can be attributed to uh, livestock. Um, and third, there are animal welfare issues, obviously, with intense um, herding and intense um, uh, bio-industry that we all kind of know, but we tend to sort of ignore because we like our meat so much. Uh, so you mentioned the greenhouse gas emissions projected somewhere between 50 and 20 percent contribution to overall emissions. Now, this would include uh, the production of feed for cattle, the methane, the transport of, of product to and from grocery stores and waste removal, all of those factors, right? Right. That's correct. Yeah. So uh, in a future, if... Uh, the paradigm, the production of meat shifted towards cultured beef, uh, some of these factors would still probably be relevant. You'd still have transport, but you would be able to eliminate methane production and, and production of feed and degradation of land. Is that correct? Right. So... Um uh, studies that are admittedly sort of preliminary because we, we don't have the process uh, co complete yet um, show that you can reduce the amount of land that you need tremendously by about 90%, the amount of water uh, by about 90%. Energy um, is a little bit debated. Um, so some say you can reduce it by 60%. Some say it will be it will stay the same. Um, that is, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not completely familiar with uh, those debates, but even if energy expenditure is the same, it will still not be associated with uh, methane emission and with uh, CO2. So it has to uh, reduce um, greenhouse gas emission um, anyway. Um, energy in the end, I think, is not the biggest concern because we can use alternative kinds of energy that are not associated with greenhouse gas emission. Can you see any drawbacks or caveats to lab-cultured beef then? Well, I think the biggest caveat in my mind is um, basically that it becomes something industrial and um, and 
cultured and no longer uh, something that requires these these cute animals. And so it's a sort of more kind of an emotional cultural thing that um, I can see as a as a disadvantage. On the other hand, you know, it's progress and we have gone through a number of those steps. So we will we'll get through this one also. And, and I think it will have the benefit of kind of relieving our conscience of um, having to kill animals for our food. I would 100% eat all of that. I don't know. I know that there Thank is, you. <laughs> I would, you know, I am not fully vegetarian, though I have been at certain points and uh-huh. um, I have cut out certain meat products. Um, but I dream of this day so that I can eat any meat I want and I would not feel guilty about it. Assuming, you know, there's no FBS in there. Um, right. 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 <laughs> uh, but I do, um, I guess that brings me to one of my next questions, which is about, um, the public perception of eating this kind of beef and, and sort of the PR issues with this. How do you mm-hmm. convince people to eat this? People that are less convinced than me. Right. Well, um, you know, there, there are a couple of things you can say about this. Uh, one is that we find it relatively easy to explain to people why we're doing this, right? The, all those reasons, everybody can relate to them and everybody can see those benefits. Um, then really, you have to wonder um, what would hold people back from eating this. Um, and, and I think one of the biggest things is, is just that it's new. Uh, nobody knows exactly what it is yet, whether it's safe, whether it's long-term safe, that sort of thing. Um, because uh, we have that with every new product, that there is a certain uh, resistance and a certain reluctance to start eating that. On the other hand, once we have developed trust in these products, either through regulation or through um, uh, somewhat um, uh, or somewhat a larger pr- uh, consumption scale, and we see, oh yes, this is a product that is safe and everybody seems to like it, then um, people are able to eat all sorts of things that they don't know exactly what it is or exactly how it's being made. We have, you know, think in the United States of hot dogs. If I ask my audience, do you know what is in a hot dog? And most people say, well, I really don't want to know. Um, and um, I also don't want to know how it's being made. Uh, but yet it's eaten and it's very popular. Why? Because everybody knows it and it, because it's it's considered safe. So um, that requires time, and and obviously, you know, it has to be a a good product. It has to be it has to be safe. It has to be regulated. It has to be labeled. It has to be um, uh, it has the taste has to be good, and it has to be relatively cheap, not much more expensive than regular meat, and preferably cheaper. So uh, those when those conditions are there, um, and give it a little bit of time, and it will. It will sell itself. Itself, I'm pretty sure of that. So it just takes a bit of time to get to that sort of ignorance is bliss state. Right, exactly. And and so what you need also is early adopters who are just adventurous enough and say, well, you know, I trust this guy and um, and I think this is a great idea and let's and let's start eating it. And those we have more than enough. 
Um, it, it's also a regional thing. We did a survey in the Netherlands um, where cross-sectional through the entire population, 15,000 people. And after a little bit of explanation what this is, we asked them, would you buy it if it was available in the supermarket? And 52% said yes or probably yes, which is a big number of early adopters which is an astonishingly big number of early adopters. Now that's the Netherlands and it may, and it, it's for sure it's going to differ from region to region, but it has to start somewhere and we are pretty sure it will start somewhere. And uh, now I guess an analog for this is that at least in the U S plenty of people eat GMOs. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not required to be labeled. They believe there's only one market that does label, uh, genetically modified food with GMOs in it. So genetically modified organisms. So, uh, and most people, some people are very anti-GMOs, but a lot of people have gotten over it. So I imagine that that could be um, something to look at when considering how this, how people might adapt to something like this. Uh, Right, right. And again, there we also see a lot of regional differences. Um, in that same survey, we asked people, you know, what would, what would turn you away from this? And GMO is right up there. Right. So, so, um, so, uh, yes, in certain uh, regions, GMO is kind of accepted. And I think here in Europe, a lot of people know that, um, some, that our foods, some of our foods are prepared in GMO produced oil and that sort of thing, plant-based oils. Um, uh, but, um, the combination of the two for the moment is still sort of killing. So while we're on this topic, um, and the distrust of GMOs, there are some really crazy advantages that could come from uh, a diet based on just lab-cultured beef. Uh, so there's issues with, as you mentioned earlier, the sterility of the environments that these animals are slaughtered in and the treatment and hormone use and mm-hmm. antibiotic use, potential for um, potentially affecting the effectiveness of antibiotics in human medicine. Uh, Could you talk a bit more about um, the differences and whether any of these products that are used in factory farming would need to be used in um, an upscaled version of lab-cultured beef? Right. So uh, we have worked on uh, eliminating antibiotics from the entire system, and we we can do that. Um, so we don't need antibiotics. We don't need um, uh, hormones, at least not the steroid hormones. You still need um, some of these proteins that I mentioned that are typically in, in our blood uh, that help cells grow. Um we um, the, the the product is sterile, so by definition, so um, it should have a, a longer shelf life in terms, at least, of its microbial uh, content. It will still degrade because of the enzymatic degradation, so that will be so it will age the same way as regular meat will age. Um, but but yeah, in the in the production system, there are a couple of advantages in that you can eliminate. Um, uh, components like uh, antibiotics and like uh, like hormones. Speaking of production, you talked earlier about um, automating these processes. Have you gotten um, much pushback from people about the, uh, I guess, 
people employed in the livestock industry and, and people that we put, would be put out of a job in, in this sort of economy. Right. And I think it's, it's a huge part of the economy and a lot of uh, people depend on that um, industry. So it's something that you have to be very sensitive to, I think. Um, a, a big part of the industry, especially the processing industry, uh, will not be affected because they will essentially use another raw material for their uh, for their processes. So they will not be affected too much. But the, 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 the ones that are affected a, a big deal are the farmers and the larger uh, meat producers, the, the, the farming communities. Um, and um, uh, so there are there are a couple of ways of looking at this. For me, a farmer is the ultimate entrepreneur. He he just wants to extract value from his land, and if if he can produce crop um, that can be used as feed for these cells in, instead of um, uh, breeding and and raising animals, um, as long as he can make money from his land, he will do that. Um, I've seen examples in my neighborhood where. Um, uh, pig farming is no longer profitable and people move because of that to potatoes or to legumes or to wheat or whatever. Um, and they will do that solely on the basis of economic uh, reasons. Uh, but they will need some time to transition into that. And um, of course, they will have the time because this is not going to be an overnight sort of revolution. Uh, but the uh, meat companies probably won't be too happy with this kind of transition and might put up quite a fight. Um, yes, they could. But what you what you see is um, that, and and for I guess a couple of reasons that we can sort of speculate um, on is that they actually become interested in this. Um, so they start, uh, Tyson has started um, investments in the in the vegetarian uh, sphere. A lot of meat companies in Europe um, have invested in vegetable alternatives for, uh, for meat. So um, they also see that there is a societal uh, need for this and that they need to um, um, adjust their business strategies towards uh, alternatives for um, livestock meat proteins. So I, I think it's also, it, it, it's going slow, um, but you see the beginning of interest from these companies and they, they really start to invest in this space. So um, I, I think, well, and, and there are a couple of reasons. One is that the public kind of demands it. Um, and uh, uh, But the second is also that they realize that um, they cannot really produce enough to meet uh, global demand in 2050. It just cannot be done. Now, what are the projections on the demand in, in 2050? Well, according to the FAO and the World Health Organization, it's it's the, the global demand for meat is going to increase by 70% until 2050. And we just don't have the resources to do that. And it's, it's hard enough for all of the food products imagined to be distributed within developed countries. Uh, but what do you know about access to meat in in developing nations? Well, um, it's basically a, a matter of, at least in China and India, it's mostly a matter of money. Um, meat is a very expensive protein product, and, the peop- and most of the people just don't have enough money to buy meat. That's why they are sort of involuntary Involuntary um, vegetarians. Um, 
that will change, uh, and it is changing. So uh, um, Chinese middle class incomes will rise in numbers, and so will the same in India. And and those people, the first thing they will do is they, strangely enough, they start to um, eat meat. That's where the 70% income, uh, 70% rise uh, in uh, meat consumption is coming from uh, uh, in the coming 35 years. It's not It's not coming from the increase in world population. And it's not coming specifically from the increase in population in China and India? Uh, no, it's primarily um, increase in wealth. Interesting. Uh, so in line with talking about how, how the world will be changing, uh, hypothetically with this kind of advance, um, you mentioned earlier that the goal is to get the amount of uh, cattle or livestock cattle and animals from I believe, cattle 1.5 billion to 30 what was the number you stated 1.5 billion to let's say 30,000 so what would the lives of these cattle look like um it's basically a choice that we have we can um you know it for at the very least they will have much more space and they won't be um so confined um so they they can move around um if they have more space that they, they will not that will not impinge on the economic viability um they can become older if we wish that and if they're not sick um they um yeah so that will be for the few cows that are still there would be a major change but we're not talking little samples of beef from these cows these cows will ultimately be slaughtered for full musculoskeletal samples correct um that's one scenario and and certainly for um in a way in my mind a preferable scenario because then you don't have the the aging animals and you don't have um the animals that are uh, emitting methane all the time. Right. Um, and also for some religious populations, that might be the preferred way. For instance, uh, halal and kosher um, probably require the animals to be slaughtered um, for their uh, stem cell harvest. So um, that's one scenario. But, but if we... If we really would want to, we could keep the animals alive and just take small samples from them. Considering how much yield of stem cells or muscle cells do you get from a small amount of muscle? Well, from the small amount of muscle that we can take from a biopsy, uh, we have estimated that we can make um, uh, 10,000 kilos of meat. 10,000 kilos. Right. Uh, I'm trying to picture this in pounds because I don't have a reference point, but I can figure. Well, that well, out. that's that's about that's about twenty thousand pounds. Um, thousand pounds of beef, right? Which and could that's feed the how many people? Um, well, considering that on average we eat, uh, it depends a little bit on whether you are in the United States or <laughs> or um, <laughs> or like um, or Europe. Um, well, let's say if you know a very modest amount of meat that you eat five and twenty-five kilos per. Um, uh, per year um, by one person, so that's uh, for um, uh, for 100 kilos. Uh, so 100 kilos would feed um, four people, and 10,000 would feed um, uh, 400 people. 
and that's from a sample of beef what size? Um, it's it's basically less than a gram. Wow, wow, that's prolific. That is a large yield. <laughs> right. So uh, obviously the. Uh, livestock industry if this kind of future happened uh, the the situations or scenarios for animals would be much improved and a lot less animals would be slaughtered but let's envision a sort of meat free or animal free um, uh, cultured beef is is there possibility for an immortalized stem cell line for uh, musculoskeletal cells? Um, in theory, yes. Um, you could use um, stem cells that divide forever. Um, and that at some point at will, you can let differentiate into, into muscle cells. In, in theory, that can be done. I'm not sure whether that would be a big added benefit that would just eliminate the last 30,000 animals. Um, and you still want to keep some of those animals for biodiversity. Right. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure that that will be a great um, uh, step forward, but in theory, it can be done. Okay. Uh, so a couple more questions for you before we let you go. Uh, you mentioned um, a couple of things that you are being able to scale up production of the beef in your lab, but what are the next steps needed to get these burgers for the first time on the shelves? Well, one uh, obvious step is that we need to obtain regulatory approval, um, which might be different for the U.S. than for Europe. In Europe, it's for sure going to be novel food. So that means that you have to prove that it is safe and that the production method is safe. Um, that approval period takes about 18 months, um, and we have to document a lot of the stuff that we're doing. Um, so that's a that's a major step. Um and then really the uh, the, the scaling up to the 25,000 liter tank, which initially will be quite a big investment um, into filling those tanks. So um, it requires a big um, sort of startup um, fund. So the scaling up of the tank, do you imagine that that would need to happen simultaneously with the regulatory approval or would this sort of what you're doing in the lab be okay to approve? Uh, no, no, no. It will have to be um, uh, in in line with the regulatory approval. So we have to do that sort of simultaneously. So you have to make that investment despite potentially not getting regulatory approval ultimately. Right. Well, we are actually pretty confident that we will get regulatory approval. So and we don't think we don't think it's a huge risk. And uh, at least in in Europe, what do you think? Uh, will be the labeling of these products in the marketplace? Um, I don't know. That's a kind of a political question, I guess. Um, um, I, I think eventually, um, that's that's what I sort of foresee in 10, 15 years or maybe 20, um, it will probably be the reverse, that uh, the livestock meat that is still available in small quantities will be labeled as such. Um and the rest will all be cultured. Um, that's what I think will happen at some point, which you now see happening, for instance, with uh, cultured salmon. It's not a complete analogy, but um, you know, if you now buy a wild salmon, it's it's labeled as wild, and the rest is just salmon. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, that's that is interesting, and it, it's true. The labeling can also be very misleading, like in the U.S. at least, where we have all these images of farms and on these packaging and chicken will say hormone free even though 
there are, is not allowed to be use of hormones in American chickens. So we'll be right to see. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, gluten-free rice, you know, all of that. So, <laughs> um, so I have one last question, and, and this is very silly and small, but I know that, you know, raw meat needs to be refrigerated, but this meat is incubated not in a refrigerator, right? It's room temperature? Um, it's actually body temperature, body, body temperature, temperature. Of, of the animals. So it's uh, 38 degrees centigrade. So at some point, does the burger need to be refrigerated? Of course, of course. So in, in order to keep the cells alive, you have to keep them at body temperature. Um, at some point, you you kill them, right? You kill the cells. You kill the hamburger, if you like. Um, and then, obviously, it uh, after that, it's refrigerated. Otherwise, it will deteriorate, degrade um, pretty quickly. Well, I do think I'd rather have a killed hamburger than a killed cow. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for being with us here today. Um, it really is such a fascinating topic um, and with such a large potential impact on global food industry as we know it. Right, right. Um, it's, it's a pleasure to work on this. Yeah. Well, we look forward to seeing what comes next from you. Okay. Well, we'll uh, keep you posted. <laughs> if you're interested in learning more about Dr. Mark Post and cultured meat, navigate to culturedbeef.org. You can find more information and links to Mark's sites on the show notes for this episode, which you'll find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. And now for something completely different. When we get back, we'll be hearing from astronomer Chris Crockett about the Cassini mission to Saturn and a brave little spacecraft's impending fiery doom. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a science writer with Science News and Society for Science in the Public. And have you heard about Cassini? This intrepid little spacecraft has been heading towards Saturn, and starting next week, it will start taking daring dives into the rings surrounding the planet. Here to tell us more about what to expect is Chris Crockett, an astronomer and freelance science writer. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thanks for having me, Bethany. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about the spacecraft? What is Cassini? Cassini is a probe that has been orbiting Saturn since 2004. It's actually been in space for uh, uh, almost 20 years. Um, and it's been orbiting Saturn for about 13 of those years, uh, checking out check out the planet, checking out the rings, the many, many moons. Um, one of the first things it did when I got there actually was was drop a lander on the largest moon, Titan, which uh, sent back some spectacular images of methane lakes and clouds on the moon. Uh, it's a really cool mission. And who's who's driving this thing exactly? Who launched it and how does it work? It's uh, a joint mission between NASA and uh, the European Space Agency. How do you drive a spacecraft like this? Because I looked up Cassini and they mentioned it was running out of rocket fuel. Mm -hmm. So how does that work? Like who drives it and what do they do with it to like make it turn around <laughs> <laughs> well i think it's still got enough fuel for now um uh basically what they do is i mean um they they actually use the the gravity of the moons a lot to redirect the spacecraft uh, uh what's one of the things they'll be doing 
over the next couple of weeks. And what they have been doing is getting really close to, say, Titan. And uh, to conserve fuel, they'll use the gravity to slingshot around and change course. So it's like in The Martian when I think they, they miss him at one point and they have to slingshot around the planet. Yeah, it kind of is, actually. Um, it's, it's, it's really cool uh, watching them try to figure out how to do this. They do some really... Uh, crazy, clever maneuvers to uh, to move the spacecraft around the planet using just the gravity. It's actually part of how they got it out there, too, was they did multiple passes by Earth and Venus and Jupiter, um, each pass by a planet, picking up more and more speed, more and more speed, and getting it out there. That's really neat. So it's been hanging around Saturn for a pretty long time. What kind of things yeah. has it taught us so far? I think some of the coolest things uh, have actually come from uh, checking out the moons, uh, Saturn has just got this amazing collection of moons. Uh, you have learned about Titan, the largest moon, which has seas and rivers of liquid methane flowing on the surface. It's actually a lot like Earth. Uh, it has storms, it has seasons, it has sand dunes and mountains and canyons. Uh, it's a very cool place. Uh, and then you've got a place like Enceladus, which is completely covered in ice. And one of the things that Cassini has taught us is that there is a global saltwater ocean, liquid ocean, sitting underneath that ice. Um, and they've I've been able to figure that out because they've actually seen water geysers erupting from the south pole of the moon and shooting water off into space. And the Cassini's actually flown through those plumes a few times and basically tasted the spray and sampled the composition of the, of the water. Wow, it got really uh, close. It gets gotten really close. I mean, it's uh, some of these moons, it just buzzed them. Uh, I, I don't know the distance off the top of my head, but yeah, it gets in really, really close and sends back some amazing images when it does. But yeah, the spacecraft's actually been been sprayed by a moon now. I just love the idea of Titan and people say, oh, it's it's Earth-like. It's got sand dunes and seasons, except for the fact that it's all methane. Methane, yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's Earth-like in the, yeah, <laughs> except the fact that it's minus 200-something below zero and it's methane and... <laughs> So, um, but I mean, these moons like Titan and Enceladus are a couple of the places uh, in the solar system where planetary scientists think there may actually be a chance of finding life. I have to say, if there's life on Titan, it's probably very, very smelly life. <laughs> <laughs> and should never, ever light a match. Definitely not. No. <laughs> there are no... No smokers on Titan. Now, um, it's been buzzing these moons and mm -hmm. sampling and finding out about, you know, the underground oceans on Enceladus. So we know that next week, something big is about to happen. NASA has a counter going down. What kind <laughs> of actions are going to happen? Well, Cassini's mission is coming to a close this year. And because it is, the, the uh, spacecraft engineers are getting a little more a little more daring with the spacecrafts. What they're actually going to do is they're going to swing by Titan on the 22nd and use Titan's gravity to slingshot around and then a few days later actually dive between the planet and the rings. And that's going to be the first of about 22 orbits where it's going to, each time it comes around, it's going to buzz the planet um, and go. sometimes it's going to come really close to the inner edge of the rings Sometimes it's going to come, just graze the atmosphere. Um, this is something they would never have done at any other point in the mission because flying through the rings is, you know, not a great idea with a really expensive spacecraft. Um, so, but all bets are off now. So this is going to see what happens. And actually, one of the cool things they're going to do, because they don't know if it's going to damage the spacecraft or not. And so in the first few passes, they're actually going to turn the spacecraft so the big bowl-shaped antenna is sticking out in front. And they're going to use it as a shield, basically like a snowplow. And as it goes through the rings, if it, the spacecraft gets pelted with anything, uh, all the debris will hit the antenna first and won't damage the instruments. 
And the antenna can take a little bit of a beating and still work. Um, but uh, so, yeah, they'll do a few passes like that and everything's holding up. They may actually turn the spacecraft around and send the instruments through first and see what they learn. And what kind of information do scientists hope we're going to get? Well, one of the things they're going to do is um, just getting that close to Saturn is going to uh, probably show them a lot more details about the clouds and the winds moving in the planet. Um, they're going to get some really up close measurements of Saturn's magnetic field and its gravity, which can tell us something about what the interior of the planet is like. Um, you know, the interiors of these planets are still largely unknown. Um, they're just big balls of gas from the outside. And so we, there's a lot we don't know what's going on inside. And I know one of the cool things they want to do, too, is... Um, actually try and measure the mass of the rings, which uh, we don't know. We don't know actually how much stuff is in there. And they can do this because uh, they can compare every time Cassini's flown outside the rings, they can compare like how the gravity, uh, all that mass of Saturn's rings kind of pulls in the spacecraft. Now, when they fly inside the rings, they can see how the gravity affects it then. And by comparing how it's different outside the rings and inside the rings, they can figure out how much of that gravity was coming just in the rings itself. And that can tell us something about how the rings are made, how long they've been there. And these things are still debated, believe it or not. And at the end, the end date is September. 15th. September 15th, yeah. What's going to happen then? Oh, it's going, Cassini's going out, going out big. Um, it's actually going to crash into Saturn. It's just going to dive bomb the atmosphere, sciencing for as long as it can until the atmosphere just crushes it to death. Um, and yeah, so it's going to be, as, it's, as it dives in, it's going to try and make its measurements for as long as possible, measuring the composition, things like temperature and pressure. And they'll see, they'll see what we see. They don't know how long it'll last. Um, but the reason they're doing it is actually really cool. Uh, it's because they don't want to risk crashing into any of those cool moons like Enceladus or Titan. There is a chance, however remote, that there's some sort of life swimming in the seas of Enceladus. And the engineers don't want to risk contaminating that, that life. Um, you know, the bacteria, there may still be Earth bacteria hanging out on Cassini somewhere. And so just to protect those moons and to protect any future investigations, they're going to dispose of it in Saturn's atmosphere. Yeah, because I remember the original idea was just to kind of abandon it in the kind of gravitational pull of Saturn and just kind of like leave it near Saturn. Mm -hmm. um, but that's interesting. Did they change the, uh, did they put it on the collision course once they realized there was a salty ocean on Enceladus? Yeah, all, all these things they've learned about Enceladus and Titan, um, is, I think what led them to change their minds. Um, other spacecraft have done the same things, actually. Uh, the Galileo spacecraft of Jupiter also ended its mission diving into Jupiter. And uh, the Juno spacecraft that's there now is going to do the exact same thing. It's all to protect protect the moons and protect any life there. Is there anything that we should particularly watch out for in, you know, scientific news coming out from this? Well, uh, I think some of these... Up I think that the highlights are going to be uh, some of the just fantastic images that are going to come out of it. Um, to me, that's always been one of the big highlights of Cassini is just the really cool pictures. Um, and so, I mean, you've already seen, actually, if you've been following it in the past couple months, some amazing up-close images of some of the weird moons um, that orbit around Saturn. And so we're going to probably see some really up-close things and some cool things about the rings themselves, what they're made of, um, some never-before-seen angles looking from inside the rings out. Uh, yeah, uh, who knows? I mean, that's the great thing about those things. You, you know, we don't, we don't know what they're going to discover. That's kind of the fun part. So, <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Chris. I don't know about you, but I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye out. Oh, absolutely. Me too. 
If you'd like to learn more about Cassini, we've linked to the NASA site where you can watch the nose dive in real time at scienceforthepeople.ca. There you'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave us a review. You can also find our Patreon page where you can toss a monthly tip in the hat for our intrepid podcasting gang. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 